After eight years of military service, Sergeant Q suffered from depression, anger, and panic attacks, and was diagnosed with PTSD. He nearly ended his own life in the parking lot of a church. In his interview today, Sergeant Q is going to share his story and what he has learned about one of the greatest battlefields, our minds. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. With me today is Aaron Quinones, who served as a Marine with First Anglico. He specialized in communication as a forward observer. He holds billets for naval weapons security management and close combat instructor. He has many more, much more that I could say about him and what he has accomplished. But we're going to start from the beginning and have him share with us. First of all, on becoming a proud Marine right out of high school. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thank you, Carol. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be on your platform and share my story. So tell us about what happened right out of high school and a little bit about your upbringing. Sure, absolutely. I, I grew up in the mountains of Northern California. Uh, it's a small little town called Mad River. And I think the graduating class was about seven students. And so oh I grew goodness. up, yeah, it was really small. I, I went to high school in Coos Bay, Oregon, but, um, you know, my grade school all the way through my freshman year, I was going to Southern Trinity uh, High School there. Uh, it's it's a small little mountain town, like I said. It's There's nothing out there but loggers and outlaws, and my parents <laughs> were the former. They were outlaws. I grew up on a hippie commune uh, that my parents were marijuana farmers. And so they actually have done a documentary about where I grew up called Murder Mountain. Oh, wow. Yes. And so it's not actually a mountain, but a mountain range uh, on the Humboldt Trinity County uh, line. And that's right where I grew up. So there used to be a law enforcement commission called CAMP, which was California Agricultural Marijuana Patrol. And they would fly around and uh, try and bust people like my family who were growing marijuana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've watched that whole industry go from the Wild West to Main Street. It's been pretty fascinating to watch. But growing up in that environment, in the outlaw environment, you know, people really romanticize the whole hippie, you know, marijuana growing movement. But 
it has a really dark underbelly. There's a there's a lot of abuse that happens there. You know, drug abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse, murder. I mean, hence the name Murder Mountain, right? Wow. A lot of wow. people disappear up there. And it's, you know, growing up like that, you you don't realize that that's not normal, right? That is normal for you. It's not until you get older, you start to realize like, oh, wow, that isn't normal to, to grow up like that and to witness those things. And a couple of uh, my classmates in my eighth grade year were arrested actually for murder. They had murdered some kids oh over my, a drug deal. Oh and uh, it wasn't really shocking to me as a kid that that happened. What was more surprising to me was how quickly everybody stopped talking about it. Like, I remember sitting there in class, like, nobody's going to talk about, like, that these kids just murdered these other kids and we're just going to keep going on with school like it never happened. Like, that was really bizarre to me uh, as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that nobody really talked about it. But, yeah, so I, I grew up like that. And growing up enduring hardship, I think, really prepared me for my time in the Marine Corps. Because when I joined the Marines and I'm going through hardship there, um, I, I felt like it was easier for me than some of the other some of the other guys, just because I'd grown up enduring so much hardship. And so I'd watch guys wash out of of boot camp. And uh, same thing in Anglico, you know, it's a special forces group. I'd watch guys, you know, wash out of that, and uh, I just didn't really understand it. Because to me, I don't want to say it was easy, but it kind of came natural the enduring hardship part. And uh, I, I've really taken hold of that ability to endure hardship and utilize it now in my professional life to help me get through, um, you know, obstacles that I, I face uh, as an adult and a business owner and a nonprofit founder. And for those in the audience who might not know, what is Anglico? So Anglico is the Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. It's part of which used to be called JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. Now it's I think it's still part of MARSOC. And it, uh, it's a group of Ford observers. So we're all master parachutists. So we'll parachute into a, into a battle space and we will control all the aircraft that comes on station. So we can do combined arms. So we can do artillery, mortars, close air support, attack helos. I can control uh, munitions that uh, have what we call GBUs, global positioning satellites. You, you use them with a, a remote control. Uh, drones now are really big. So we utilize drones, MLSR uh missile systems. So we're the guy who puts steel on target. So we work with a lot of other special forces units and conventional uh, units as well, helping support their mission. So let's say the Rangers have to go in and, and, you know, extract a high value target. Uh, there'll be an Anglico team nearby that's controlling all the air on station, suppressing the, the anti-air, bringing their choppers in, telling them where to land, and then uh, providing close air support. So putting attack helos inbound to be able to support those guys on the ground to get them out safe. And if there is a casualty uh, or somebody gets injured, we also know how to run a nine line brief to be able to tell the choppers where to uh, land to pick up our dead and wounded. So we control all the air on the battle space. That's our our unique um, capability. Oh my goodness. I, I never knew that before. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing that part. And you also mm-hmm. volunteered for a combat tour in Iraq. Can you tell us why or what was in, you know, what made, how you made that decision? Yeah, you know, it, it was really easy decision for me. I had spent so much time training um, in Anglico and uh, had a very unique skill set that was, that was needed. And so I had the opportunity to, to not go. Uh, cause I was finishing my first contract 
but I volunteered to go uh, in out of the IRR, which is the uh, individual ready reserve. So I was already at home with my family. I, I could have just stayed there, but I volunteered to go. I had lost a good friend of mine, Brian Bertrand, uh, a year previous. He His aircraft went down uh, on the Afghan border. He was the first casualty on the war on terror uh, out of Oregon. And so we were classmates together. I'm the one who convinced him to join the Marine Corps with me, uh, depped him in, and then he actually served under me for a few months uh, when we first got in. I, I was about I was in about a year longer than he was because I joined right out of high school and he spent a year trying to go to college and it wasn't working out. And so, you know, we were friends and I talked to him about the Marine Corps and he ended up joining. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's a small Coos Bay is still a pretty small town. His dad was my history and geography teacher. Um, and so I knew Mr. Bertrand really well uh, as well. So when he when he died, uh, I had a lot of survivor guilt uh, about that because I'm one oh, of the guys really? who yes, yes. get him into the Marine Corps. And so I carried that burden. So for me, it was an easy decision when the war kicked off to volunteer to go because I felt like I owed it to Brian to, to go and fight. Um, so for me, it was a really easy decision to, to say, hey, I'll, I'll go. We're going to switch gears a little bit here now. So at what point did you realize that the real battlefield is in your mind? Well, when I came, when I came back from deployment, um, my out-processing was about 48 hours. Now it's much longer. Guys get much more time. There's much more uh, support. Mm and infrastructure put in place. But when I came back, I was one of the guys that really fell through the cracks. I was one of the first guys that came back and the VA just wasn't ready for, they didn't have a system in place to help guys like me. So I ended up falling through the cracks. I tried getting help with the VA, but it really didn't help me at all. And since I didn't have a disability rating, I had to pay for all of my treatment out of pocket. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I was getting bills from the VA paying for my mental health treatment. And I just got tired of paying for it. And so I stopped. I said, this isn't right. You guys, you know, this is the deal, right? Like you're supposed to take care of me. That's the contract we signed. So I stopped paying. And then that next year, they ended up taking my income tax return, which left me pretty destitute. No kidding. I was trying to hold down a job. I couldn't, I wasn't making enough money. I wasn't working enough hours, you know, because I was struggling with mental health. And then that hit me. Uh, and the next thing I know, I'm living out of my car. And so it was a pretty humbling experience to uh, go from being a top tier operator to living in my car. No kidding. Wow. And feeling like the government really just abandoned me, you know, and I, it, it, it was really hard pill to swallow to feel like you were all alone and that this organization that's supposed to be helping you is not doing it Um you know, I got fired from my job because I, I wasn't very reliable. I wasn't showing up, which, you know, I mean, they had every right to, to terminate me. Uh, I just couldn't manage my own mental health at the time. What and year so, was this, Aaron? This was probably 2005, 2006 okay. that I was living in my car. Um, and so I, I from there, I started to get it together. And I worked a few jobs driving concrete trucks and working at a car dealership. But I just couldn't keep it together. I keep it together for, you know, three, four, five, seven months, but something would happen and my mental health would deteriorate quickly and I couldn't control it. I didn't know what was going on and I would lose my job, lose my apartment. And so it was this yo-yo effect. And what I found now, because I've been studying the brain, is that this is called the anniversary effect. 
So when, really? when the low points in my mental health, yeah, the low points in my mental health uh, were always around the same time. And so oh. I started journaling and tracking these things. And there's an, it's actually called the anniversary effect. And so there's a great book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it talks about how we retain uh, trauma on a cellular level. And so even though on our conscious mind doesn't recognize it, our subconscious mind does. And it will start to relive those trauma experiences. Um, and we start having anxiety and depression and not understand where it's coming from. When you understand the anniversary effect and you start looking at your own life and the patterns, you start to see that there's these low points throughout the year for your mental health. And the majority of times it's connected to a trauma that you've experienced. Now, even though you are sharing this predominantly from a military perspective, this is very relatable. And I'm sure you're aware of that. That's no news. So explain how that affects anyone and everyone outside of military. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when I wrote the book, I wrote it uh, for other veterans. And I had a wonderful um, editor. Uh, she's a very wonderful Christian lady. And she says, you know, Aaron, if you explained, not change the terminology, but just explained the terminology and the acronyms that you're using, you could reach a much broader audience. Hmm. And, and I was like, I don't really want to do that. But I went ahead and did it. And man, she was so right because what I've learned is that no matter how you experience trauma, whether it's from combat, from childhood, from abuse, from rape, from kidnapping, it doesn't matter how you experience trauma, the end result is always the same. It's the hypervigilance, it's the anxiety, it's the depression, it's the suicidal ideations. Like it doesn't matter how you experience it, the end result is is the same for everybody. And so uh, when I explain the terminology, I have it's it's been amazing to watch uh, other groups utilize the book and the curriculum that okay. I created for domestic abuse survivors or women coming out of, uh, of trafficking or um, you know I was in Lithuania teaching last last year uh, I was teaching in Lithuania at a college uh, all these college kids Lithuania has the highest suicide rate. Really? of all of Eastern Europe. Wow. And so, you know, these, and these are young kids, they haven't experienced combat, but they've experienced yes. trauma yes. over there. And so that's, so I, I had no idea that it would be able to, to be so relatable to so many different people. But like I said, when, what I realized is that, that no matter how you experience trauma, the end result is always the same. So a lot of people want to kind of stack rank trauma, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I didn't, I'm a, I'm mm-hmm. a veteran, but I didn't go to combat. So I, sh- I don't have PTSD. It's like, well, I've heard your experience in the military and that sounds pretty traumatic, even though it was in training. So yes, it is. But everybody wants to kind of stack rank, like, oh, well, who's got it worst? You know, like somebody <laughs> always has it worse than me. Yes. So they downplay their own trauma instead of actually um, recognizing it and, and getting help for it. I really appreciate that answer. That really, really helped me to understand. And and I appreciate what you said there. Now we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Q missions. We're going to talk about the stigma, stigma of mental health issues. And something you said that I think is going to be really exciting for our audience to hear and that is how to heal through serving which is also part of your book so we'll be right back 
Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Thank you so much, Erin, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope today and what you have shared already. And even in light of PTSD and explaining how it does not just affect those who have been in the military, which I know that that was a common term for for decades, correct? Yes, absolutely. So let's talk now about Q missions and what that is. And I know you'll tie it together. Yeah, absolutely. So I, when I, when I first started my healing journey, I started trying to figure out what was wrong with my brain and how do I fix it? I looked at in the Marine Corps, I was a close combat instructor and we say one mind, any weapon. So I really visualized my mind as a weapon system. And I said, okay, if a weapon system is malfunctioning in the military, what do we do? We tap rack bang, we do an immediate action drill and we get it back in the fight, do a function check and keep on, keep on running. And so I tried to do that with my brain. So I had to learn as much as I could, as quick as I could, about how does the brain operate? And it's a very complex system. Uh, so I started reading all these medical journals, reading all of these case studies, and learning as much as I could about how the brain functions. At the same time, uh, I was reading the Bible. And so for me, I, I had uh, come very close to ending my own life. And it was on the 4th of July, and I was driving around looking for a place to, to just quietly end my life because I was dealing with the anxiety uh, and the depression. And the anxiety was so bad that I, it felt like my body was buzzing. And so I don't know if people in your audience have felt this way, but it, I felt uncomfortable inside of my own wow. skin. I just wanted to get outside of my skin. Like if I could have, I would have peeled my skin off like you would take a shirt off. Like it just felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Like it was fiberglass under my skin. And I know now that that was my brain pumping a tremendous amount of cortisol into my system uh, and adrenaline and that it was overdosing my body. And that's why I was having those sensory, sensory overload issues is because all of those chemicals were like a fire hose going off inside of my body. That's why I was feeling so physically uncomfortable um, when I was going through this, this mental health episode. And so I drove around just trying to find a quiet place in my life and i found this big vacant parking lot and so i drove into it and i backed up my vehicle right next to the side of the building uh, and it was summer in the northwest so it gets a little warm and so i could feel the heat of the sun coming in through the the window and so i rolled my window down just to get a little bit of a breeze to come mm -hmm. through and when i did that i could hear these kids playing on a playground not too far away and i thought oh, i'm just gonna wait until these kids take off because i don't want them <laughs> to have to deal with this and so I waited and waited. And then the next thing I knew, I had woken up. I had fallen asleep in, in my truck. And when I woke up, my suicidal ideations were gone. Oh, and so my I thought, word. That was strange. You know, I've never experienced uh -huh. that. I put my pistol away and I went on with my day. 
Well, a few days later, I got invited to go to church. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm not interested in religion. It's not my thing. And uh, that Sunday, I woke up a little hungover. And I looked at that address. And I thought, what the heck? Let me go check this thing out and see um, what it's all about. So I drove to the address. And I drove right back into that same parking lot that I'd almost in my life. <laughs> and it's pretty surreal experience to drive back in uh, thinking like, okay, did I actually die? And mm-hmm, I'm in mm-hmm. some sort of purgatory <laughs> groundhog's day. Like what's happening here? Uh, went in and started listening to the pastor. He was talking about, he was doing this series about feeling lost and alone. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. And so after the series, you know, I think it was like four or five weeks, he gives an altar call. I go up and I give my life to the Lord. And I thought, okay, this is it. Like, I'm just going to give my life to the Lord and everything's going to be fine. I did the altar call and nothing in my life actually changed. I was like, (laughs) well, that didn't work. Like, okay, maybe I did something wrong here, but there's something here. I've got to figure this out. So I joined a small group with a group of guys and it was supposed to go for six weeks. Three years later, I was still working in that same small group, (laughs) group of guys. And they were really teaching me how to read the Bible. Now they had no idea how to relate to me as a veteran, a combat veteran struggling with these mental health issues. But they just loved on me the best way they could and taught me how to read the Bible. So I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading these medical journals. And I created this small little program for myself to be able to overcome trauma with these things that I learned about the brain and about scripture. And so I would journal every day and I would find these concepts out and I would take them and make them an action item. And then I would live it out. I couldn't keep a job. So I started my own janitorial company. Um And over the last 14 years, my wife and I have grown that company to have over 130 employees now in the Pacific Northwest. And so the program that I created for myself really worked. Seven years ago, the Lord called me to lead other veterans to find the same healing that I did. Uh And so I started Q Missions. And I start them uh, right where I started. So I got invited by my church to go to Mexico and build a home for a homeless family. And I was very reluctant, and that's a common theme in my life. You'll you'll see. I'm very reluctant when the Lord calls me to do something, um, but I do it. <laughs> so I went to Mexico and I built that home. It was on Memorial Day, as a matter of fact, and I built that home for a homeless family. And something inside of me changed. You know, I felt okay. hope. I yes. felt emotion. I yes. felt these feelings that I hadn't felt in years. And I thought wow, I don't know what this is, but I need more of it. So I went back to my church and said, hey, when do we go on that again? They said, oh, we only do it once a year. I was like, well, it's not enough for me. Can you connect me with other people? And so I learned about this whole missionary network that's out there through Builders International and um, AGWM and YWAM and all these other organizations. So I would travel around the world and I would build churches and schools and orphanages, dig wells, uh, you know, teach children's programs three or four times a year. I would travel and do these things and it was really helping me. And that is what, that's where I learned this concept of healing through service, that there was healing through serving God and serving other people. And it, it totally blew my mind when I, I'm reading in the Bible that it tells us this is what we're supposed to be doing is to be loving and serving others and loving and serving God. And then I'm reading these medical journals that are telling us the best way to build mental resiliency is through altruism and volunteerism and helping other people. And then I go out and I put this in practice and I'm like, oh my gosh, this really works. Like I feel much better. And so that is what I teach guys. So every year on Memorial Day, I'll take a team down to Mexico 
uh, and I'll take 40 to 50 guys with me and we'll build a home for a homeless family. So it takes about 20 guys per house. So if there's, you know, 40 guys, we'll do two homes in, in two days. And I teach them from the book that I wrote and the curriculum that we created, uh, the process of healing through service, how the brain operates, you know, so every chapter, we break it down into five pieces. Number one, we give the concept that we're talking about. Number two, we show the scientific studies behind this concept. Then number three, we show the scriptural unpack. What does the Bible say about it? And then the fourth part is we take those three things and we combine them together and give them an action item, something they can go and do right now to prove it to themselves. So they don't have to believe what I'm saying. They can go do these things, these exercises, and have these experiences for themselves. And then the fifth part is typically a conclusion or a transition to the next subject. So basically what you're doing is we're taking the focus off of ourselves and putting it on someone else. That's that's a very big that's a very big part of it. But there's also a neurofeedback loop that happens in our brain. Okay. That when we're serving other people, it's increasing our own well-being. And so there's mm-hmm. four main brain chemicals that we need to have a healthy brain. So they're really easy to remember if you remember dose. So it's dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Mm-hmm. And so how do you create a dopamine hit? Well, if you accomplish a small task, you'll get um, a bit of dopamine, which helps you complete the next task. Uh, oxytocin. The best way to build oxytocin is a hug from somebody. And so when you're on the mission field and this family is overwhelmed because you've built them a home, they're hugging you, you're hugging each other, you're hugging the missionaries. There's a lot of hugging that happens because it's a very intense emotional experience. So there's your oxytocin. Serotonin is uh, the chemical that's released when you've elevated your status within a group. So now that you've done this with this group, you've accomplished this thing, it elevates your own social status um, inside the group. And so you get your serotonin. And the endorphins are traveling overseas, going to these places where you've never been before. It's a little bit dangerous, a little bit exciting, and you're getting those, those endorphins. So you're getting an overload of all four of these chemicals that you need in your brain during this you know, three day experience that you're having and you're, you're teaching your body how to, how to build and release these chemicals. And isn't that true that when you are in prayer or in praise that the same thing happens? Yes, absolutely. So it's really, um, it's really cool when you look at brain scan images of people who are deep in prayer or people who are in meditation, um, you can see the same area of the brain actually light up. It's Hmm. pretty fascinating. I go into that in my book. I talk about how the different areas of the brain will light up and you can see that when people are in prayer uh, and worship. It's really remarkable that you can actually see physical changes happening in the brain when you're in prayer and worship. I'm really glad that you said that that is in your book, and we're going to talk about your book a little more. That's exciting, to say the least. But first of all, I just want you to address how to break the stigma of mental health issues. That's a great question. So I actually, I travel a lot um, and speak on this very issue right here. And I, I think it's really important, especially for people who are in a leadership role. If you're in a leadership role, it's even more important for you to take note of this. So for those of you who are listening, and if you're in a leadership role, this is the time to really pay attention. So what I've learned, and I'll go more in depth in it, but what I've learned is that when we speak about our own mental health struggles, it gives people permission, it gives people around us permission to speak oh. about their mental health issues as well. Oh. So if you're in a leadership role, 
or if you're in a, a position of authority, especially, it's important for you to share these things. Now, you don't have to be an open book and tell everybody everything about your life. But if you share like, hey, I've dealt with depression before. These are some things that I've done. It opens the door for other people to not feel alone and to be open and ask for help. And so if you're in leadership or in a position of authority, super important for you. And so as I was writing my book, I um, I finished writing it and I turned it into the publisher and they they looked at it. And my publisher, very wise woman, she says, you know, I've read through this, Aaron, and it feels like it's missing something. Like there's one more chapter oh. you're supposed to write. And I was like, no, that's it. Like, that's all I got. I got nothing else. I've never written a book before, <laughs> you know? And she's like, well, just, just pray about it. So I did. I prayed about it. And I was like, you know what? There is this one other concept that I haven't fully fleshed out yet. You know, it was just this concept that's been rolling around as I've been working with veterans and building this book. Uh, and that chapter, I call it the mental health camps, those three mental health camps that became the first chapter of the book. And it's actually the most requested, uh, portion that people ask me to speak on is this idea of the mental health camps. So in a brief summary, um, as working with veterans, there's three main camps that I see people fall into. And then there's this elusive fourth camp that I think we can all get to. So on the far left, you have what I call the victim mentality. And so this is a minority camp. These are people who feel like uh, the world is out to get them, that nothing is ever their fault. They take no responsibility for their healing process. Um, and we know people like this. I, I lived uh -huh, in this camp uh -huh. know very well, right? Where I felt like everybody owed me something and people needed to, to change for me, uh, not, not being willing to change myself. So that's the victim mentality. And like I said, that's a minority right. camp. And on the right side, you have another minority camp, which I call the denier camp. And I lived in this camp too. When I was active duty in the Marine Corps, I thought mental health issues, that's something that happens to guys who've been, uh, you know, multiple combat tours and very decorated warriors. I didn't think that it was anything that would ever happen to me. And so in this camp, you hear people say things like, oh, you just need to get over it. Or if you tried harder or uh, if you prayed more or you hear all these things discounting an individual's experience uh, regarding their mental health journey. And, and you hear more derogatory stuff where it's this stigma that they're broken or they're useless or they can't do anything. And those those are a minority camp as well. But the majority of us, the majority of us, we live in the middle. And I call it the silent majority because there are people who have mental health issues, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations, addiction, but they're afraid to say anything about it because they're too afraid of the people on the right, the denier camp, painting them as the people on the left, the victim mentality. So they suffer in silence. But we're the only ones that can actually change the conversation. Because if we stand up and we say, hey, I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with depression or PTSD or whatever that is, it gives permission for everybody else to do the same thing. And it changes the perception of what mental health looks like. And so for the people on the right, the denier camp, it changes what they think somebody struggling with mental health looks like. Because they look at me, I travel the world, I have two very successful businesses, an award-winning nonprofit, I'm a published author and speaker, I have a technology startup. And they say, you struggle with depression and anxiety? I said, yeah, man, there's some days I can't even get out of bed because my depression is so bad. Or I have to leave an event early because my anxiety is overwhelming me. 
it changes what they think that mental health condition looks like. Yes. And for the people, for the people on the left, the denier camp, it gives them hope, hope that they can do better and be better. But the most important thing it does is it emboldens the rest of the silent majority to step forward and say, hey, me too, I struggle. And then that way we can move from the silent majority into what I call camp hope. And hope, <laughs> hope is so powerful. According to the John Hopkins University, it is the number one concept most closely related to survival. I think that you have really covered the bases here, and yet this is only a beginning because your book is going, I'm assuming, uh, going to expound on each one of these. Is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit more about your book? Yeah, absolutely. So the book, when I wrote it, I wrote it um, really with the small groups that veterans get into or uh, like recovery groups or like the church small groups. Um, because what when I learned a lot was in the small group at my church where I was learning to read the Bible and, and understanding these concepts. So when I built the book, I built it so it could be used as a small group study. Okay. So there's a video series that can go with it. And each each chapter, there's 11 chapters of the book. And each chapter, you go through those five different uh, okay. sections. And then you go do these action items together. And then by the time you get to chapter 11, uh, it has you go out as a group and do some sort of community service together as a group, using everything that you've learned and putting it into practice out there in the field. And so it works great with uh, small groups. I teach a lot of churches here who are trying to get missions organizations up and running in their churches. Uh, they utilize this curriculum to help them do that. I've got other churches that use it for um, like domestic abuse survivors. I've got another organization that uses it for people who are coming out of trafficking to be able to, to utilize this curriculum to teach people how the brain operates. So we, you do all of that. And, and throughout the whole book, you're journaling your experience. And I tell people that if they go through all 11 chapters, and they do all of the journaling, um, that there's actually 12 chapters in my book. And that when they're done, <laughs> they journal, it becomes the 12th chapter of my book, which is the first chapter of their own. Oh, I like that. That's cool. And what's the book called? Uh, it's called Healing Through Service, The Warrior's Guidebook to Overcoming Trauma. And it's available everywhere, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anything you'd like to say, either in summary or something that you want to leave with the audience? Yeah, I think I think just remembering that, you know, hope, like I said, is the number one catalyst for survival. Uh, and, and we know this intrinsically in, in the military. Um, that's why you'll see 10 guys run headlong into gunfire to pull one guy out because we're yeah. never yeah. going to leave a man behind. And it's that idea of hope that keeps that person fighting longer than anybody ever thought possible. And that leads right into the technology that we created called Q Actual. We created a, a mobile platform for your phone that you can select two or three friends that can help you when you're struggling with mental health. So you're, you're giving and receiving support. It's just a basic chat app. And we built the technology with this concept of hope in mind and knowing that um, the squad is the number one component for success on the battlefield. And so we just transitioned that concept to the battlefield of the mind. And so now two or three guys will get together and they'll chat on this app. And if somebody's struggling with mental health, they don't have to think about who am I going to call or what am I going to say? 
they can just push one button on their phone and it sends an emergency alert to their friends that they're struggling with mental oh health. Oh my word, that's incredible. It, it's, it, so it does that automatically. So two things happen when you initiate the signal. The first thing that happens is it starts a cognitive reconditioning program, more commonly called a grounding technique, which therapists have been using for decades to help people regain their cognitive thought process. Because during a mental health crisis, part of your brain actually shuts down. So people who have survived suicide attempts, they always regret it. They just couldn't process through that moment. It's not that they wanted to end their life. They just, their brain was malfunctioning. They had the thought of suicide that they couldn't process through the moment. So they acted on it because they have reduced impulse control during a mental health crisis. So now they can press one button. It sends the alert out. It starts a grounding technique. And as soon as they finish the grounding technique, it takes them directly into the chat where they're chatting with their friends. Now, if the individual doesn't answer up or they're saying some things that are concerning, it doesn't even matter because when they initiate the signal, it turned on their GPS locator and now their friends can navigate directly to their position via the app or they can direct emergency services to help the individual because if there's been an attempt, those moments really, really matter. Okay. So they gave this, this app went through a clinical study at a Cone Health um, in Greensboro last year. They were giving it out to people needing help with suicidal ideations who were presenting in the emergency room. During the 10-month-long study, we had a 90% reduction to readmittance to the emergency <laughs> room, and not one person attempted suicide who was using our wow. technology. So now we're just trying to get it in the hands of as many people as we can, as fast as we can. For, for your audience that, that may be struggling with mental health or has a friend or family member that's struggling with mental health, um, we designed this just like we looked at the progression of first mm -hmm. aid in America. You know, we looked at CPR, the Heimlich maneuver, and the AED system, and we asked, why do these systems work? It's very simple. Mm -hmm. It works because it puts the power to save a life in the hands of the average person. And that person keeps them alive long enough to get them to the mm. professional medical treatment that they need. Well, our app does the very same thing. Wonderful. It, keeps, it, it puts the power to save a life in the hands of the average person. And their job is just to keep them alive long enough to get them to the professional mental health treatment that they need. And that's all available on the show notes, correct? Yeah, it should be on the show notes. Uh, you can go to qactual.com. You can actually download the app for free. So there's a free version that people can download uh, on the App Store, Apple, or Android okay. uh, App Store. You can download it, get your friends on it. Um, you know, the, the people who pay for the app really are the mental health professionals. So if you're being seen by a mental health professional, there's a way for them to track okay. your daily mental health data. And so it's free to the users. Um, and we're looking at, you know, mental health providers that right, uh, right. utilize this to be able to, to track their patients' uh, mental health journey and provide appropriate, you know, resources. Well, this entire interview has been enlightening, to say the least, on many different levels. And I really appreciate what you shared. And I believe that, especially the second part of the interview, that people need to listen to it more than once. You gave us so much uh, information there. And of course, in the show notes, we'll have as, as much as possible so that people can connect with you. And I really appreciate what you shared today and in every respect. And thank you. Thank you, Aaron, for being on Never Ever Give a Pope. And if you have one last quote or something you would like to share regarding hope, please. Yeah, I um, maybe not regarding hope, but I do have three rules that I have in okay. my life. And so this is something that you guys can take with you. Uh, and I've learned these the hard way. Number one is to be honorable in all things. 
Number two is to surround yourself with people of high integrity. And if anybody asks you to violate rule one, refer to rule two. All right. Thank you again, Aaron, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.